In this episode of Truth Trek, we're going to look at how Paul prayed with power and that Christians of active faith can have hope in the power of God. Welcome to Truth Trek, where we dive deep into the Bible to uncover the treasures there. I'm Pastor Jason Hubdy, and I will be your guide as we journey together into Scripture, God's Holy Word. In our last episode, we took a look at the first 14 verses of the first chapter of Ephesians, and today we're going to be continuing in that study as we complete the chapter. The idea that we want to remember from this is that Christians of active faith can have hope in the power of God. I'll read the passage and then we'll discuss it together. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. To review a bit from last week, we're looking at the letter to the Ephesians, which was not only a letter to the Ephesian church, but also a letter that was intended to circulate among the churches in that region. It is a letter that, in a way, is a handbook of Christian living, laying out how Christians should get along and live together in a way that glorifies God. In the introduction of the letter, as in many of Paul's writings, we see an opening that marks a life of praise and prayer. Paul's writings reflect his priorities and philosophy of life. And last week we looked at the first 14 verses, which contain what is known as a doxology, or an outpouring of praise to God. In those verses, he celebrates the work of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, as he shows how each one of them has an active role, not only in history in respect to his plan of redemption, but personally for those of us who have realized our salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This letter is thought to have been written within a few decades of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and Paul had planted many churches who he continued to correspond with by letter even while he was in prison. For that reason, this letter is included in what are known as the prison epistles, or letters from prison. 
In the passage before us, we see a flow from the doxology in the first 14 verses into a praise and a prayer. Paul shares how he has heard good things about the church there and also shares what he prays for them. And there's a few key concepts here. There's three main things that Paul says he prays for. He prays that the church would receive wisdom and understanding, that they would realize the hope they have, and they would recognize God's power. In verse 15, we see that Paul has heard a good report about the church. While our translation says Paul said he heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, we miss a little of the implication of the original Greek language. What is hard for the translators to convey is that when Paul says he heard about their faith, he's not saying, I heard about your faith in receiving salvation. The words used are present tense and active. So another way to look at it is that Paul has heard of their living out the faith. So he's not rejoicing only in their salvation, but also in the fact that they are participants in the family of God. Are we living our faith as well? Paul saw this as a reason for thanksgiving and prayer. He says that since he has heard of their living out the faith, that he thanks God and remembers them in prayer. Again, we may not get the full implication of this in our English translation, but Paul is saying that he constantly is mentioning aloud in his prayers the church. He obviously does not know all of them by name, but he's praying and interceding on their behalf. And what is he praying for? The rest of this paragraph tells us. Paul, again, is using some long phrases or thoughts that are strung together. So it takes a little careful study on our part to not take snippets of this passage out of context, nor do we want to put our own meaning on them, but really we want to discern or understand what meaning this passage had to the original recipients of the letter almost 2,000 years ago, and then what it means to us today. The first thing that Paul says he is praying for is that we would receive wisdom and understanding. Note that he doesn't say that he has prayed, but he keeps praying that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's modeling consistency in prayer with a hope and expectation of the result. There may be some debate whether that should be spirit with a capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit, which gives us wisdom, or a small s, meaning an attitude of wisdom. Uh, There are scholars on both sides of this, which is reflected by the various English translations of the Bible. Some of them use a small s, and others, like the NIV, use a large s. If it is large S, then Paul is really praying that we would be a spirit-led church, relying on the Holy Spirit for wisdom and understanding. I think it is fair to say, when looking at the entirety of Paul's writings, that this is what he was saying. In fact, the language used by Paul here reflects how the prophet Isaiah predicted that Jesus would be filled with and guided by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If the Spirit of wisdom and understanding rested on Jesus, and we as believers are promised that we can also receive the Holy Spirit, 
then it is certainly a safe conclusion to say that Paul greatly desired that we would be a Spirit-filled people. We are to live our lives in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, not only for wisdom and understanding, but also for counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. If Jesus had this same Spirit empowering him, we can live in the Spirit-filled life as well. Paul writes in some of his other letters the same thing. He is always praying for believers that they have wisdom and understanding. In light of Paul's teachings about bad doctrines and false teachers, we can see why his concern is so grave considering people having wisdom and understanding. We do have this wisdom and understanding revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, but we also must take part in learning those things and continually studying the scriptures, and learning and relearning the gospel. When Christians don't feel the need to learn how to study scripture, it can lead to dangerous beliefs that can distract them, or worse, alienate them from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next, Paul prays that we realize the hope we have. Or as Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This part is well aligned with the overall intent of Paul's prayers. While earlier he mentions his prayer for us to have wisdom and revelation or understanding, now he prays that our hearts be enlightened as well. This shows that Paul sees the importance of our faith being all-inclusive of our senses and rationale. Not only does he pray for wisdom, which relates to our thinking, he prays that our hearts be enlightened in order to know the hope we have. The Christian faith, then, is not only something we understand in our heads, but something that our hearts feel. And what is it that our hearts must be enlightened of? the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul's theology includes a connection to Christ and the gospel in our mind, our soul, and with the power of the Holy Spirit. J.P. Moreland wrote a fantastic book on the subject of the balance of these three and the importance of not focusing on one area at the expense of neglecting the others. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to renovate our souls and we are to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says here that he wants us to know the hope we have. Paul speaks of hope throughout his writings, using it with much emphasis, especially in regards to Christians looking forward to their blessed hope in order to be able to make it through times of trials and persecution. Paul is looking forward to this hope. Hope is something that applies to the future. Listen to what Titus 2, 13 and 14 says. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. In Romans fifteen thirteen, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we see that Paul is not speaking of hope in a bubble. It permeates everything he thinks or writes, as well as others such as Peter. Paul was a man of hope, and Christian, you should be too. The hope of our eternal future with Christ is enough to bear us through hard times and is the implement that we use to have joy even in the most difficult circumstances. Let me share one more passage regarding hope so that we all may rejoice with Paul. From Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we hope because there is better yet to come. The Christian looks forward to a future that Paul says the glory of it is so great that it's hardly worth noting any suffering we currently are going through. He says not only do we hope, but all creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So this is yet to happen, and it will happen. And when it does, Paul says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. This means that the Christian has hope not only for a spiritual state of union with God, but a physical glorified body. And we aren't talking plastic surgery here, but a level of perfection we don't know yet disease-free bodies. The first fruits of the Spirit are that which we talked about last week. The Holy Spirit is our down payment or earnest money that assures us that God's plan will be completed and we will see his glory. Finally, in Romans 8 here, Paul says that it is in this hope that we are saved. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. Paul is saying, as he and Peter also write, that this is not completed yet. It is still coming. For what is hope to someone who has already received the object of their hope? So, if Christmas has passed in any certain year and you got a gift you hoped for, you don't hope for it anymore. Hope cannot be a term used for something already realized. Before we were married, we looked forward to a day when we were one with our spouse and we were hoping for that. But once we were united, we no longer hope, but instead live out that promise. And that is the image Christ gave us, that we would be united to him 
and we have that hope. Glory to God that we have that hope. Praise his beautiful name that we have that hope. Oh, that we would live in that hope daily with the same fervor that Paul had when he wrote this beautiful passage. God gives us hope, and that, through Christ, with the down payment of the Holy Spirit, so we are assured that one day it will be completed. Praise the Lord! One last thing I would like to mention about hope. In this passage, it mentions an inheritance. At first glance, and with respect to our understanding of our adoption by God, we tend to automatically think of our inheritance in the kingdom of God. But here, when we look at the vocabulary used by Paul in his original letter, he's talking actually about God's inheritance. So God inherits those who believe in Jesus Christ. He called us and he considers us to be a gift to himself. This shows that great value that God places on each of you, and this should give you cause for great celebration. He loves you, he chose you, he calls you, and he adopts you, and he considers that an inheritance to himself. Finally, Paul wants us to recognize God's power. In his fervent prayers for the church, he wants us to recognize God's power and authority. See here that Paul uses powerful language to describe this power and might of God. Power, mighty strength, exerted. These are the words that Paul uses. And Jesus was raised by this power. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father in this power. We need not think of Jesus as sitting next to God on a throne chair somewhere. The language here is to give us a sense of unity that we find in the Trinity. The same in regards to far above. This is not a spatial term, as though Jesus is above, up in the stratosphere or something like that. But rather, this is a hierarchical term. It refers to Jesus being at the top of all chains of command we could envision. Paul says that Christ is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but the one to come. We consider that Christ is more powerful than Satan, and surely he is. Satan will one day bow to the Son of God. Nothing Satan does is allowed other than by God allowing it. The same for all those beings who are Satan's, the demons. They are all subject to Christ. However, be careful that you don't give too much credence to these evil beings. Paul actually mentions demons and Satan very little. The same with Jesus. We should not ignore that there are evil spiritual beings, especially as the Bible reminds us that our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against spirits. We need not make too much of this, because Paul focused his ministry on the power of God. This is what this passage is about. In fact, here he doesn't even specifically mention demons or Satan. Our world today, even the Christian world, has a lot of focus on demons, Satan, even representations thereof, like vampires. The focus we should have should be on Christ alone. I'm a little leery when Christians focus so much time and thought on Satan and demons. Some in ministry make this the main focus of their teachings. It can be just what itching ears are looking for. There seems to be a desire to feel the thrill of exploring the dark spiritual side. I can tell you, though, that while I will not ignore the spiritual battles around us, 
I choose to focus my ministry on the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the power of God through the Holy Spirit that we can walk in confidence of. We are not ignorant to those things, but our focus should be on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, because in the power of His resurrection we have hope. Here Paul says that Christ is far above, not just a little more above, far above. He is above all rule and authority, which probably represents governments. He is above every power and dominion, which probably refers to those spiritual battles. Jesus is more powerful, and He is above every name. That includes you. That includes me. Jesus is far above every name. We love to acknowledge that until we realize that our name is included. Jesus is above you and I. Jesus is our Lord, and that means he exercises all power and authority over us as well. Sorry to lump us in with the devil here, but we could narrow this hierarchy of power down to two groups, Jesus and everything else. We are in the everything else. All is subject to Christ. All will answer to him. All will bow the knee and open the mouth and proclaim that he is Lord. We need to remember that in celebrating the victory we have in Christ, we are still subject to him. We still must reverence him. We can call ourselves friends of God, but at the same time, we dare not get too friendly. Paul writes that Jesus is already over all, But he also says that it isn't just in this age, but the age to come. Clearly, Paul likes to reinforce again and again the hope that we have. He always brings us around to that hope. Heaven help us if we look at the world around us and forget the hope we have. We're lost without it. We will despair without it. We have nothing without hope. And finally, we conclude with verses 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Another reminder who is the head of the church. Not the pastor, not the superintendent, not the pope. Christ is the head over everything for the church. Everything we do must flow from him. It must flow from his teachings his gospel, and his love. All that we do should reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. The church here is portrayed as the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that we each individually are members of the body of Christ, and every body part has a necessary function. That means we are all called to serve in the way that God created us to serve. We have a duty and responsibility to find out what it is that we could do to serve the church. Everyone has something to offer. Not only is the church blessed by those who serve, but those who serve are blessed as well, as they have a sense of fulfillment in carrying out the work of the kingdom of God. So what does the last phrase mean? The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is a tricky thing to translate. The church could not be the fullness of Christ in the sense that it completes him, since he is complete on his own. It more likely means that Christ is the fullness of the church. In other words, he fills everything. Ephesians 4.10 says that he might fill all things. Christ fills the entire world. There is nowhere we can be and avoid him, for he fills everything in every way. I pray, as Paul did, that you would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would understand the hope you have in Christ 
and that you would walk in the power of his Holy Spirit. May we always honor and glorify him as the head of over everything in the church. Thank you for listening today. If you found this to be helpful or encouraging, please share with someone who might enjoy joining us. Also, please like and follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on your social media, email it, or text the link to someone. I sure appreciate it if you do that. Thank you, and I will see you next time on Truth Trek.